3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, 3CR listeners. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast, and you're listening with Carly this morning. Um, and today it is the 16th of January in 2020. Um, this is our first um, kind of live-ish show <laughs> for the year. Um, so today I'll actually just be playing a selection of conversations that I had with um, some incredible people who were performing at and also speaking at Woodford Folk Festival, which is up on beautiful Ginnaburra Country. Um, in so-called Queensland. So I think we're just going to get straight into it this morning and we're going to be listening first up to a conversation that I had with Fina Hartson. Enjoy. Fina Hartson identifies as a Pacific Trans Fafafine person raised in New Zealand and living now in Australia. And also, Fina is the first Fafafine lawyer to be admitted in Australia. Welcome, Fina. Thank you. Uh, and Fina, can you just start off by telling listeners a little bit more about yourself? Okay. Um, yes, well, I, um, as I mentioned before, I was born in New Zealand and moved to Australia in um, the 90s and um, became an Australian citizen and then um, completed my legal studies here at, I mean, in, in Sydney and um, was admitted to the bar and now I've been practising for about five, six years now as a solicitor. So it's been great, but challenging, but great. Um, and what areas of law um, do you practise in? Um, I practise um, immigration, uh, family, um, employment law, human rights, uh, discrimination law and uh, a little bit of criminal. So I'm basically a general practitioner of law, so my, my main working area has been um, with community law centres, and but though I have worked in private practice, but most of the, most of the private practices that I've worked on have had a um, really strong social um, connection to the community, so that they, they work with people who are marginalised or people who can't afford um, fees, so it's always had that sort of community background with private practice, and even in private practice as well. And what have been your experiences um, of being a lawyer in court, um, which is a very like white, you know, colonially entrenched system? Yes, yeah, so um, have, I've had interesting uh, experiences. For example, being um, mistaken for being the client as opposed to the the, the solicitor, um, requested by one of the um, magist- oh, one of the uh, court court clerks if I was a solicitor and um, having to present my card to them when I approached the bar table, whereas um, other solicitors obviously just sat there. So these little things, but I, I love, I sort of love um, those things happening because um, it sort of, you know, means that I'm breaking down stereotypes and barriers and things and sort of, you know, playing with your mind to think, oh, it's black, this black trans person is, is um, actually a lawyer, so, you know, God forbid... <laughs> Um, so maybe now let's talk about um, your experiences with Woodford. So um, you've come here to speak, and yeah, what brought you to Woodford, um, and how do you feel about being on the Woodford lineup? 
Um, yes, I was invite, invited by Chloe, um, the, one of the program organisers who's organizers, been here for a while now. I think this is her last year. So I was really thankful to, I mean, to, for inviting me to come to speak, just to share my story about you know, being trans and the trans Fafafafina experience with um, the Woodford community. And um, what I've seen, it's my first time here, they've been really great, really warm and welcoming and supportive and really encouraging. I think it's great, great festival. I mean, apparently I'm the one of the only trans person that's actually um, performed at this year's festival. So hopefully in the future they'll have more trans and gender diverse and LGBTIQ presence here. But at least, I mean, I'm glad that I'm here to sort of, you know, speak to that marginalised group, about the marginalised group too at this festival. So I think it's a good experience. Mm. Um, and you're also involved in a lot of um, like systemic kind of advocacy work as well. You're involved in an organisation called Kaleidoscope, um, and there's also um, you've also been involved in a number of uh, legal reforms, not only just in Australia but also um, in the Pacific as well. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Okay. Um, well, Kaleidoscope. I was director of Kaleidoscope um, Australia, um, and basically they support and push for uh, law, law reform in the Asia Pacific region. Um, they just monitor changes in the laws um, of um, countries in the Asia and Pacific region. They've also um, organised a um, put together a, a number of years ago um, a best practices um, report in regards to training asylum LGBTIQ asylum seekers in detention, and they presented that to the um, Department, whether they've actually, you know, used their suggestions and submissions in regards to treating LGBTIQ clients is um, questionable, considering the results of the uh, home affairs and um, LGBTIQ immigrants that have had unsuccessful, you know, claims being heard. So, um, you know, but things that, you know, hopefully we move push forward. So, Kaleidoscope Australia. Um, you know, pushes for those reforms in the Asia-Pacific region and also monitors them with the UN, United Nations, on those changes, which is a good thing, helps and supports them. Uh, in regards to law reform in the Pacific, I um, was luckily, uh, lucky to be involved with um, the Samoan Fafafini Association in 2013, 2012 2012-2013. Um, the Samoan Law Reform Commission was updating their um, Samoan Crimes Ordinances 1961 since it's been reformed and in that legislation there was um, um, they, they, the same-sex relations between adults, consenting adults, both male and female, um, was still um, criminalised as was um, cross-dressing or not cross-dressing or presenting as female um, for males, uh, both in private and public places, that was still criminalised. So with my with advocacy for myself and um, another solicitor, Imania Brown, um, and Samoan solicitor, and Alex Sua, another Samoan solicitor in Samoa, and uh, now the president of the Samoan Fafafini Association, um, we were able to make those changes and um, those reforms were made where um, same-sex um, adult relations are now um, legal. Uh, in Samoa as, uh, as uh, uh, presenting as female um, public and private spaces that is now legalised so um, it's changed a lot within the community and um, has helped the Samoan Fafini organisation um, flourish in that country. Wow, 
Incredible. Um, and I also just wanted to talk about law reforms happening um, in so-called Australia as well. So just focusing on that there have been some law reforms in regards to trans birth certificates, um, but that's only in a Victorian context. Do you see um, that also changing in New South Wales? Um, I hope it I hope it does. I mean, because there's you know there's there's it really depends on the the, the the state government and how they view it. But I think that there are positive changes being happening. Uh, happening in that arena, um, I think that common sense common sense prevails where they will just follow suit because it's a, you know it just makes sense to follow the Victorian model, but it depends on on you know the the government basically the state government and how they address that. Hopefully it'll be positive, but who knows with the current conservative government that we have in the state at the moment, New South Wales. We're talking about what kind of issues um, are you advocating for at the moment? Okay, well, my personal issues are with, um, at the moment, uh, relate to refugee detention and indefinite detention of refugees, um, and also, you know, LGBTIQ immigrants and refugees that are in in indefinite detention. I think that's, um, you know, something, an issue that needs to be addressed by the present government, and um, it's just an immoral a moral legislation that, that just takes people's freedoms, and I think that even as, as, as LGBTIQ people, um, just knowing that we live in a country that takes away people's freedoms for for the only reason of you know c- coming to this country to seek freedom, and being a refugee is and making that a um, <coughs> an offence at where you're where you're indefinitely kept in, in, in detention is just immoral, and something should be done about it. So I feel very strongly about that as well. Um, do you think that the answer lies in um, like reinstating the Medivac laws at all, or do you think that we just need to, the government needs to be much bolder? Yeah, I think the government needs to be much bolder. I think that just they just need. To, I think what I think really needs to happen is just a change in government in general. I think that needs to be a change in government and just a new way of looking at the a new way of looking at um, refugees and asylum seekers and the immigration policy that we have at the moment. It's just um, it's just punitive and just the main object object of it um, is to be punitive and to punish people for seeking refugee. Asylum is, um, which is a right, is meant to be a right under the United Nations. Um, you know, so yeah, I, th- I feel really strongly that you know there needs to be changing government, and I think that's the only way that we will see those changes happening. Um, and how can listeners find out more about the advocacy work that you're doing? Okay, well, Closed Hope Australia is on Facebook, so you can just sign up there and just um, find out more information about Kaleidoscope Australia. Um, and the same thing with the Samoan Fafafini Association that has a Facebook page as well. Um, so just go to those two places to have a look to see what they, you know, if they could support us and support those organisations to help um, promote law reform in the Pacific. And do you have any more um, like speaking events coming up, especially for folks in Melbourne, so that they can come and hear you speak? <laughs> Um, well, that's sort of in the planning stages, so hopefully in 2020, 2021 that will happen and um, maybe I'll join forces with the wonderful Amal or we'll do a gig together and, you know, really show how far Fafafini can work together. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR. Thank you. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR.
Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free, one of us is chained, none of us are free. VCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Comes more adding at VCR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Just a moment, VCR Community Radio, Araja Al Ishtarakal An. Ningal Ungalin Samuha Vanali, VCR I Kertu Kondirikandirikal. Rinri Nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Yes, you're listening to 855 AM 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, um, and you're with Carly this morning, um, and I'm playing a selection of audio um, that I recorded whilst I was up at Woodford Folk Festival, uh, and that's up on beautiful Jinnaburra country. And so now we're going to launch into a conversation that I had with the team from Digi Youth Arts. I'm here at Woodford on beautiful Jinnaburra country and I'm here with Digi Youth Arts. And so first up, I'm going to um, speak with Alethea Beetson, who's part of the team. And Alethea, what is Digi Youth Arts? Digi Youth Arts is a collective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people committed to sharing the stories of um, basically our youth and our elders and all intersections of our community. We have been around since 2013. We are one of the only Indigenous youth arts organisations in the country and really our commitment is to providing as many spaces as we can for Indigenous young people to share their stories because they're often some of the most silenced people in this country but they're also, in my belief, the most important because they're the youngest generation of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. And we do have a lot of young people here as well, so I'll just get you all to introduce yourselves um, and also tell us what your experiences have been of Digi Youth Arts and why you're a part of this collective. Uh, Yira, I'm Marin. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from down in the Mudgee area of New South Wales, um, and I'm an artist with Digi Youth Arts. Um, and what have been some of your favourite experiences of being a part of Digi Youth Arts? Some of my favourite experiences with Digi Youth Arts has been getting to probably just overarching, I'm going to go, getting to challenge myself and learn new things, like learn how to produce experiences and direct plays um, and be mentored and just meet a whole bunch of really deadly other young people. There's probably been some of my best experiences. 
I'm Kane Brungies. I'm a proud Goongaree Cubby Cubby man. I uh, grew up on Waka Waka country. I'm out there at Mergen and um, currently living kind of between there and Brisbane, you kind know, of wherever the work is. And um, yeah, I'm a visual artist and uh, I think my first experience with Digi Youth Arts, um, I just moved from, from home there in Mergen to Brisbane for art and um, I was painting in Aletheia and Dylan Mooney rocked up to the wall and um, they told me all about Digi Youth Arts and asked if I wanted to be involved and it couldn't be, um, you know, it couldn't have, couldn't have worked out any better because I've, I've just been loving it ever since. I've found, um, I found community away from home and that's something I, I, um, I kind of, I feared missing out on moving back from, from my hometown to the city and there it was, found, you know, working with other young people, um, working with my people, creating, um, sharing stories, you know, it's, it's um, a dream really. My name's Lucky and I'm a Jabba Jabba man from up north of the Kimberleys and uh, I came into Digi Youth Arts at the start of this year and it's been a really awesome time for multiple, um, yeah, many, many reasons. For me, Digi Youth Arts has been um, a point of uh, cultural reconnection and education and just to be spending time with other um, young Indigenous artists in multiple different disciplines has been really awesome working um, as the producer and a member of the Ancient Bloods, uh, making music and recording an album has been really amazing and um, some of my favourite memories are teaming up with other Aboriginal poets and dishing out really spicy poetry to the cabinet. Um, was really strong. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, being here at Woodford, and we've just done our first uh, flash mob clapstick performance, which is real, really was really awesome. It was my first time ever doing a clapstick performance in my whole life, so that felt really special culturally. And that is what the best thing amongst many things about Digi Youth Arts for me is like having grown up without much cultural exposure to be involved in community with other young people um, engaging in you know artistic and cultural practices that you know I felt like I missed out on growing up gives it you know a richness and significance and makes it as filling as it is awesome to be a part of. Can you tell me a little bit about why um, Digi Youth Arts is at Woodford and um, what are you doing here? So DigiYouthArts is at Woodford in two capacities, firstly a performance capacity as well as an installation capacity. So DYA worked with some of the Jinnabara mob um, up here at Woodford to produce um, this audio installation. And to create the audio installation, we went around to elders and youth from the Jinnabara, Waka Waka and Cubby Cubby mobs and asked them to share stories about land and place. Um, and we recorded some of those stories, and one of our young musicians, Cormac, has edited those into a beautiful sound piece that people are able to come into our installation and sit and reflect and listen to these stories, and then they are able to write a response on the white walls of the interior of the installation if they would like. Um, alongside that, we're also doing the Clapstick Flash Mob, which is one of D-Way's favourites, and we've been doing it a few times at many different locations um, and we revamp it slightly and change it up um, a little bit every time and so uh, that's a flash mob performance that a bunch of our young people dance in. So I'm really interested um, in the process of like, talking to traditional owners um, of the area on which Woodford exists. Yeah, can you tell me about the process of actually capturing those recordings? Yeah, I found the um, process to be a uh, beautiful experience, you know, getting to um, link up with... Um, elders and young people and um, 
yeah, and, and community, going out, um, linking up, you know, going out to Cubby Cubby Country, linking up with Arnie's, Arnie's there, and, um, you know, going back home on Waka Waka Country and linking up with Arnie's and uncles there, and um, just, and also here in, on Junibara Country and listening to the elders speak, you know, I found it special and um, powerful, and, um, you know, hearing stories about country, um, our culture, um, about today um, and all in between. It was, um, yeah, you know, some of the stories that, you know, talked about love for a country, um, talked about, um, you know, connection to country, responsibilities, for our, our responsibilities, you know, past responsibilities, caring for country, you know, the continuation of that, you know, living the legacy, you know, not legacy, living, living the, our life, you know, as custodians. And, um, you know, that people's experience with that and, you know, just life in general, you know, going out. Um, people talked about their experiences growing up on country, um, what, what they got up to, maybe hunting or anything, you know, just being around family. A lot of it was all about love too. But then um, some other people delved into other aspects, um, you know, talking about our history. Um, yeah, and it's, it captured everything. Uh, not everything, but it captured a lot of today and our past. And, yeah, it was, a, it was an honour to go and listen. And, um, Thanks for that. And, Merrin, what are you hoping that people will get out of uh, this installation? I'm hoping that people will mostly get some learnings out of this installation. Um, there are not that many situations there where people can go and have um, a conversation to learn more about Indigenous culture with Indigenous people. So I'm hoping that this installation will give a little bit of insight into our culture, into how we operate as a people today, into how we've operated as a peoples for thousands of thousands of years. Um, I hope people will take a moment to reflect and they'll sit in this installation and think about the fact that they are on unceded Aboriginal land um, here at Woodhood and just have a moment to reflect on that and to engage with it and to think about it and to just put it more into their daily consciousness and get them thinking about these things and these issues and our amazing culture more. So this sound installation um, at Woodford is actually a part of a much bigger project that's happening across um, all of so-called Australia. Can you talk a little bit more about the project at large? So this installation here at Woodford is part of a much larger uh, DigiYouth Arts project where we stand, which is an interdisciplinary multi-arts uh, platform project that has had outcomes in um, locations all over Queensland. Um, we have, uh, I am personally a part of the Ancient Bloods, which is a, a rotating indigenous band in its uh, second iteration of its ensemble. It changes over ensembles over the course of the years. And uh, we're currently working on our second album, um, doing workshops and recording out of the valley um, in Queensland. We've also done um, projects this year where we go out to, uh, we've gone out to places like Hobart, Kanamala, um, Charleville, and done uh, murals in connection with the youth in different in those different locations. We've also done uh, an outcome at the Le Boite Theatre. Um, and yeah, it's a really amazing thing to be a part of, and this will be the last one for the year. Um, so what's on the horizon for Digi Youth Arts? What are the next upcoming projects? 
Uh, did you thoughts are finishing off, I guess, where we stand? We have this outcome here at Woodford, and then next year uh, we'll release an album with our ever-changing band, The Ancient Bloods. And we're currently rolling out another program called Remake, Regenerate, Reclaim, where young people have a bunch of residencies with some of our partners, but through us, because um, we work with a lot of Western institutions just because they've been the ones that have been given the space. So we kind of reclaim that space back and make make it our space for the time that we're there so that when the young people are working there, they're kind of working with Indigenous mentors and people working in that field. So we already had Marin, who you've just heard from, have a residency at La Boite and made it a show about her family um, and spent a couple of weeks there. We've got some young people will be able to apply um, possibly from everywhere across so-called Australia, which will be exciting, um, to get some funding for an EP to support a musician in that way. And we'll have a two visual art exhibitions that people can apply to be part of, um, one to kind of have a solo show, and then one for a young curator who might just want to work with artists and create that kind of experience. Um, it's really exciting because the DYA developing artists who you've spoken to, they're one of the streams of Digi Youth Arts. We also have um, a youth artist stream, and so these guys were kind of making sure they're getting as much skills as they can so they can take on the work of looking after our youth artists. We also have a pretty exciting project that we will launch on the evening of Invasion Day called Cooked, where Indigenous young people are going to ask the questions they want to ask of Australia, and we're going to make a show about it. So for us, we're just going to hold up a mirror to the country and kind of be like, this is how you behaved this year. Is this okay? <laughs> so we've got some really exciting things happening next year. And you can find them all on our Instagram, DigiYouthArts, and also Facebook. Great. Thank you all so much for um, yeah speaking about your experiences of being a part of DigiYouthArts and all the best for yeah sound installation at Woodford and also the flash mob. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and you just heard a conversation that I had with the Digi Youth Arts team up at Woodford um, that was at the end of last year and goes into the first as well of this year. Uh, and now I'm going to play a track called Better in Black by Thumb Plum.
that track there was Better in Black by Thalma Plum. And this morning, um, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM with Carly, and I'm playing a selection of conversations that I had with performers and artists uh, that performed at Woodford over 2000 and the end of 2019. Um, and... Yeah, we're going to launch you now to a conversation that I had with Jesse Lloyd, who heads up Mission Songs Project. So it's the third day of Woodford. Um, it's quite warm up here on um, beautiful Jinnaburra country. And this afternoon, I am speaking with Jesse Lloyd. Jesse is a performer, producer, and creative entrepreneur. <laughs> and she um, takes the lead on the Mission Songs Project. So good afternoon, Jesse. Good afternoon. Could you first start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander musician. Uh, my family are the Gaias that come from Palm Island in North Queensland. And um, I come from a very musical family and um, I've been doing music most of my life. Fantastic. Um, and you're here at Woodford with the Mission Songs Project. How did that project initiate? Uh, out of pure curiosity, um, I was sort of uh, starting to hear some old songs from my family and it, I, I was really intrigued by them because they kind of made me a, a aware of a sort of a different a different world or, or gave me an insight into a different world through song and what, on what the past was like for my grandparents and great-grandparents. And I figured the same must have applied for other families and other communities um, so I, I, I set up the project to, to venture out and see if, if it was true. And yeah, there's, uh, there's been an amazing uh, collection of songs found. Incredible. Um, and I saw you perform last year at Woodford um, and you performed with a different group of singers. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit um, about yeah, who you're performing with this year and who you've performed with in the past as well? Uh, well, Mission Songs Project is, is always a, uh, a collaboration between Indigenous artists and myself. Um, I rotate singers, uh, Indigenous singers, and inviting um, them to, at different times to, to join me on the show. And, and the beautiful thing about the rotation is that every every Indigenous singer that, that, that is involved in the show, they also bring their, their, own, their own family stories and connections to music and um, and the music on how they were raised, going back to their grandparents. So it's, you know, it makes it quite rich and, and, and um, uh, broad scope uh, where, uh, using a, a range of Indigenous musicians and singers. Um, this year at Woodford, um, 2019, uh, I'm performing with Shelley Morris, Candice LeRae and Christelle Kickett. What have been some of your favourite stories that have come from... Um, you know, researching and being a part of this project? Oh, um, there's so many stories. I, personally, it's been um, uh, massive for my own realisation of my own, uh, my own in identity, um, exploring my family's songs and using my family's songs as kind of the, the pilot and, and, and applying that to other communities and other family's songs. Um, it's made me really sort of look back on uh, on my family, my genealogy, um, how 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 my ancestors uh, survived, and you know and resilience through the mission days. Um, and it really, I can see where, how it all leads up, and it makes me who I am today. Is, is definitely see a, a continuation of um, you know, or sort of 
follow through throughout the gener- generations and I call them intergenerational song traditions. Yeah, incredible. Have you ever come across an old song um, that's from the Mission Days and then heard the artists that are singing on that and then been able to connect those artists with current family members? I think you were talking in, um, about one song that was written by the Donovans um, and, yeah, you then connected with some of the Donovan family. And yeah, the Donovans were on my radar. I mean, I've been good mates with Emma Donovan for a long time now and... Um, I, I knew her family, like my family, um, uh, you know, we have been practicing these intergenerational song traditions and, you know, and their, their forte is country and western. Um, Emma was always meant to be a country and western singer, according to her family, but, um, she decided to go soul and funk. Um, but she'd been singing at Tamworth ever since she was a little girl. Um, but I knew that their, her family would have had the sort of same songs. And um, so her and she was somebody I, I was sort of consulting with early stages of the project. And we'd always heard about this song of, of her grandparents that, uh, or they used to sing so many songs, but this is one song and, and she couldn't rem- remember the other verse or all, all the words. And so when we found the recording in the, in the archives, it was really special for them to um, hear um, that, them old recordings of their family. Oh, it's just so incredible um, to be able to, yeah, share that with people. And, yeah, you've been travelling for two years, um, researching, consulting with communities to revive these mission songs. How many songs have you collected so far? Uh, it's hard to tell. Some songs are uh, just variations of, of, of a single song. Um, I don't know. I, I generally say maybe about, in my first sort of travelling and looking around, I probably came across around 30, maybe 40 but at the moment, I just sort of work with the um, ten, um, the main ten that that, that give a, a broad enough scope where they're from different different decades um, throughout this time, but also from different states and different regions, just so you get a taste of the the, the diversity. You know, um, country and western with Aboriginal families is, is very big, but just generally in the in the southern half of Australia. Uh, whereas in the northern half, you know, families from Broome, Darwin, or Torres Straits, or and that the the music is can be very South Pacific influenced, and um, you know, um, you know, up there you got um, a lot of intermarriage too, you know, and so and that influences the music that people sang. Um, yeah, so it's um, it was really cool to to explore all that. How can people yeah, listen to your music? How can they purchase the album? Yeah, you can get the album um, from the website missionsongsproject.com. Uh, which has got these ten songs, and also in the album is a is a booklet with all the, all the lyrics and chords. I'm I'm pretty keen for for people to um, explore these songs further and and engage with the project on their own, and meaning that you know they can sing these songs. And um, we've got a lot of schools that do the songs. There's a couple of kid friendly songs in the collection, and um, a lot of community choirs actually singing these songs. So uh, on the website, I've always also got a, a songbook with the SATB parts for choirs to learn um, it's also on Spotify iTunes and on, they're on YouTube as well if you, people just want to have a, check it out Great, so have you also been visiting schools and collaborating with libraries and museums to make sure that these songs are recorded for future generations or is that something on the horizon? Uh, not, nothing really formal. Like my main priority with the project is live performance. It's, as a musician, that's my forte. I'm not an academic 
So, you know, I'm not going to write a PhD on it. Um, and I just sort of focus on focus on what I do best, and which is, you know, doing the show. And there's a lot of... I get approached by a lot of teachers. They're doing their own um, class plans for the work. So, yeah, I mean, people can... Can, can do that, but anything sort of formal from me, I just sort of haven't got time, really, at the moment. I mean, for me, I have a, an agenda with the project, and the agenda is to try and get uh, one of these songs from, from the Mission Songs Project, a, a part of the, the Australian songbook, um, because there are no Indigenous songs on the Australian songbook or in the Australian song collection in terms of our folk songs, you know, other than Waltzing Matilda and Bound for Botany Bay. We need some, you know, these songs are a really big part of Australian history and music is a beautiful way of sharing that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jessie, for spending the afternoon with me. And you just heard a conversation that I had with Jessie Lloyd from the Mission Songs Project when I was up at Woodford at the very end of last year. And now we're going to listen to some... Um, Jessie Lloyd performed some of her Mission Songs, um, and this is a recording live from the Melbourne Recital Centre. CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Yes, you're listening to 855am 3CR with 
Carly from Thursday Morning Breakfast. And this morning I'm playing a selection of conversations that I had at Woodford 2019, uh, Woodford Folk Festival 2019. And um, now I'm going to head into a conversation that I had with Kamahi Jordan King. I'm here at Woodford 2019 and it is day four. Um, a slight breeze has come in today. It was much hotter yesterday. Um, and I'm sitting here on beautiful Jinnaburra country with Kamahi Jordan King. Kamahi is a singer, songwriter, actor, visual artist, and better known as one of the best showgirls on this continent, Constantina Bush. Uh, welcome, Kamahi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling listeners um, just a little bit about yourself? Um, look, um, I come from Catherine. I have um, in my tribal blood, I guess there's Wanyi, um, Borolulu country, and Lawn Hill National Park from my dad's side. On my mother's side, it's uh, Gurunji, Mudbra, Jingli. So, yeah, and I ca- I've got raised in Catherine, but I've um, accidentally found myself in performing arts at the age of 20 and just never stopped, just never stopped. I was actually going to be a visual artist, which I still do and I still am, but I wanted to really concentrate on that and, you know, get into that more. But um, I had the opportunity to get into a musical that was being written in Perth with Black Swan Theatre Company and just never look back. It was after the brand new day era I saw that and just thought, wow, I want to do that. So um, how has Constantina Bush come to life? Well, that happened in Melbourne. Like, um, There was Out Black, which was the GLBTIQ and Sister Girls group. Um, and basically they put on a show every year and somebody pulled out in 2008 and Brian Andy, who was like taken over as the convener at the time, said, oh, have you done drag before? I said, no, but it's easy. I'll just mime. I mean, it's not that hard, is it? So I had to audition for him. I auditioned and I didn't get it. Um, and then I sang live and it just sort of took off from there. And that was when she was born in 2008 in Melbourne. Oh, incredible. 2008, it's a little while ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 11 years. Um, but ever since then, I've been still doing her, but um, getting better, I guess. And we became Constantina Bush and the Bushettes in 2009. Um, and we come and did the Woodford Festival. Um, since then, we've been going quite strong. I'm here solo, though. Like, my Bushettes have had babies since then. Um, but I got picked up by uh, Moira Finnecane for Finnecane and Smith burlesque shows for the Burlesque Hour Loves Melbourne. And I've toured quite extensively with her and her shows. Um, and now I'm back after quite a bit of a break at Woodford Festival. Now, your show is quite political, um, and there's a section in Constantina's performance where she talks about the beginnings of the um, Northern Territory intervention, and I'm sure the listeners will know a little bit about the intervention, um, but the initial justification for the intervention was made by the Indigenous Affairs Minister at the time, and you know, the Australian government was saying that there were pedophile rings that were um, operating in Aboriginal communities, um, but, yeah, there were also, you know, the Australian government was also saying, you know, that there were high rates of alcohol-related harm um, and incarceration, and they used all of these things as um, a tactic um, for justifying the implementation of the intervention. Can you speak more about why you've involved, um, yeah, talking about the anti-intervention into your performance? Look, I think the idea behind Constantina Bush is that she's able to get away with things, and and, um, in saying... Uh, political stuff in the show in an entertaining way like through jokes, comedy, singing and dancing, when I had the bushettes around, it 
people tend to listen more, so they like the messages actually get through. Whereas if I was to sit up there and talk quite seriously like this about what was going on, people would hear me, but they wouldn't listen. Um, so with Constantina, I, th- I guess I use her as a vessel to get these really important messages across, and people do think about it because they come up to me later and say you're quite clever in how you've got me to actually listen. I understand now what's going on. I've done a bit of research myself, and this is like years later they'll say to me, hey, you're Constantina Bush. I've got to tell you something, and they'll say you're really clever because what you did was I never used to really listen to stuff like that, but you you made me think more, and I really really understand now what you guys are going through and. It's not good, like you know, and I feel ashamed to be a part of it. And that, and me as a black fellow, like you know, when people come up, sometimes they want to be educated. And that, like, I know it's annoying to us, but if you can take the time out to say, listen, look at it from this perspective, because a lot of people think white privilege doesn't exist because that is their privilege. They don't need to worry about the things we worry about, so they don't believe it exists. But for us, it's um, it's a disadvantage. We should maybe just call it black disadvantage and put it that way instead of saying white privilege and people understand it but to talk about things like that in my show um, I don't know it helps to get the message across and like a lot of people come and see it but like um, all my other black friends are like oh, but you're com- you know, preaching to the converted because the mob that are going to come and see your show are mob that will support us anyway but there might be one or two people out there if I can change their thinking then they can change somebody else's thinking and that's enough um, but you did also focus in your show um, on um, how Constantina was um, saw all of like, the army folks coming into the town, and that, that's actually a story that not a lot of people know about the Northern Territory intervention. Can you talk a little bit about that and also land permits as well that were revoked because of it? Yeah, so like in my thinking, and um, I went back down from this, I, I believe that the in- Northern Territory intervention was the biggest land grab because every time blackfellas get ahead they got knocked back a couple of steps and 10 or so in this case because our land permit system was working quite well it had to be abolished so that they could you know because you needed permission to come out on aboriginal land you just couldn't go out there looking around for minerals and stuff so they invented this story of um child molestation and to be honest with you pedophile rings and things like that happen in, in the white world more than they do here. Like, can you see any black fella trying to organise a pedophile ring or organise anything like that? You know, like, even even um, in Melbourne, you need to, if you want to go and get a box of Sudafed, you've got to show your licence because people are using it to make ecstasy and stuff like that. But then again, that's not black fellas producing these drugs. All that sort of crime and that is done by white people. It's not us. And so it really angers me when, you know, you get looked at like you're a big drug dealer when you want to buy a box of Sudafed in Melbourne. This is what I hated about it. Um, and you had to show your ID and everything. I don't care. Like, I mean, I needed the Sudafed. And, you know, and to be honest, look at all the mob that owned the chemists too. Those little boxes of Sudafed should be 4.95. Because of that, they know people are coming to buy it to make drugs. Those prices can go up to $20. And that's white people right up there at the helm. No matter what they're doing, it's, it's them, you know. So we get, here we are, sitting down, making sure everything's going good with our country, with our land permit system, so nobody can just come out and take advantage of us. Look, looking for more resources in Australia. There's not enough land. Look, what about all this Arnhem land that Aboriginal people own? All right, let's do this. Let's make up the story about them running pedophile rings, making, you know, fermenting orange juice and Vegemite in their bathtubs. What a load of shit. Um, Anyway, like that sort of stuff, we get stuck with all this bullshit. And so they did that. They abolished the land permit system. The minute they did, it was 3 a.m., me and my cousin Robbie King 
um, a couple other people were standing at BP. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and this big truck goes past. On the back, it's got these four-wheeler motorbikes with these drills capable of going probably one to two metres into the ground. And we followed it. We followed it out for 50 kilometres and it turned off the central Arnhem Highway where you need permits to go. Now, why the hell were these things going in? And this, as soon as the intervention started, all these army officers come up everywhere. There were army men everywhere. And they were there just in case there was trouble when they were sorting out all the pedophiles, quote, quote unquote pedophiles, um, in the Aboriginal communities. And, you know, like our communities, um, there are violent things that happen in that, and it always happens because of alcohol. But when people are forced, forced to drink, it's because they're living in a white world, a system that's designed for white people on their own country that they're not a part of and not allowed to be a part of. So in that, like, any person that gets left out of something that feels oppressed, that they will turn to drinking, white, black, brindle, whatever. Now, the thing is, is that nobody's acknowledging what is driving Aboriginal people to do these acts of violence and that. And to be honest with you, um, whenever anyone asks me about white privilege, I go straight back to this. I'm like, look at this. You take away someone's being, their spirit, you break their spirit, you've got an empty shell walking around. That, that emotions will rise up eventually and, you know, you'll have a violent outburst no matter what you do. So us people, as, as a people, as a human race, have been oppressed for so long. It is still going on. This intervention should not happen, but it's been extended for another 10 years. I live up in the Territory. We have mandatory sentencing. You go to jail for nothing. Everyone's, oh, the system's broken because most, every single kid in that Dondale Centre is Aboriginal at the moment. Um, and everyone's like, the system's broken. And I read somewhere about the lady that wrote and she researched this, the story of when they see us, those five boys that got put away by that white, um, whatever she was. And it wasn't true, they were all innocent. Um, but anyway, she said, the system is not broken, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. And I totally agree with her. The white world that we live in today, we're not really a part of it, and we have to work twice as hard before we're noticed to be a part of it. And when we finally get there, the instant we do one little thing wrong, we just drop back down to the bottom again. You know, and I'm sick of being a bottom feeder in my own country. Like, I... My plan is that once I set up some sort of business with my art and stuff to get a bit of residual income, I'm going over where they invaded us from, like to Britain. Because over there, even though they're the country that invaded us, I felt so at home. Nobody followed me around the stores. There's black people on the commercials. And a country like that, it's just a melting pot of culture. And I just felt like a human being for once in my life. So I would move back there in an instant to just get rid of this feeling that I walk around with every day and we don't know it because we're so staunch as blackfellas we walk around with these walls up you don't know they're there because that's 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 your black disadvantage like the opposite of white privilege you actually walk there you're used to that sort of treatment so you don't notice it because it's the normal for us well when you go overseas and you look at something else you know like our kids here they're too busy looking to um African Americans for oh they're strong black people and blah 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 but when you look at America 400 and something years ago, what was it, 1492 or 1462 or something, I don't know, um, they were colonised by white people and 400 years later, they got 200 years on us, those Native Americans are still having the same problems that we're having today. In fact, I think in some ways we're a little bit more advanced with um, the problems you have. Uh, well, well, not problems, but in dealing with that, we're, we're a little bit forward. So this intervention will knock us back again. 
Um, some of the things they've used in there is going to go Australia-wide soon, like the cashless debit card for anybody that's on um, Centrelink payments. So, you know, things like that. We're, we're being controlled at a level where, you know, like we're just not giving the opportunity or given the opportunity to step up and control things ourselves. There's so many of us that can do it. I mean, we make up the most smallest percent of the population, yet we're the highest population rate when it comes to incarceration. So that intervention stuff, like they're serious messages, and if you can put it in good way, um, you know, to a show and get people to listen, then you're making people aware, and that's my, that's my goal through Constantina Bush. And you just managed to convey that through the power of humour, which is just so incredible. Um, can you talk about that? Well, humour, like, as, as blackfellas, like, we shouldn't be laughing at all. Like, really what's happening to, happening to us in our own country on a day-to-day basis, we should be the most sad, walking around, dismal, you know, dismayed, but we don't. We get together, we have sing-alongs, we sit around the fire, we talk, we laugh. We laugh a lot. And sometimes, you know, we laugh that loud, most of us, we get kicked out of restaurants. <laughs> you know, like, and so that is something that was instilled in me from my family, from my cousins, when they used to come around, all that stuff. So I've learned to listen to how we are, to convey how we are through my shows, using that as a a way to get the message across using humour. So, like, I'll make a joke about something that's quite serious, you know, like domestic violence and stuff like that. And um, it might rub people sometimes the wrong way because you never... You, the other thing, too, is you can't please everyone. And in my show, I might rub a few blackfellas the wrong way and that's where lateral violence starts to come in because I've had quite a few nasty messages on Facebook um, from other blackfellas. But I put them in their place and show them why I'm doing what I'm doing and then they start to agree with me and apologise. So... I've only had one that's like, um, you know, held to his gun and, yeah, blah, blah, you wait till I see you. I said, yeah, bring it on, bruss. You don't realise from my photos, but I'm actually six foot tall and bulletproof. And I can rumble. You don't think I learned to grow and fight like you did? You know, like, I'm not afraid of that. And if I ever do see him and he tries to come up and smash me, well, I'll slide him everywhere. Like, I will, because that sort of violence I will not have. And if it comes to me, comes at me like that, I will make it stop no matter what I have to do. So, yeah. That's not comedy. <laughs> but, yeah. And speaking about violence, um, has Constantina ever experienced any queerphobic attacks whilst you're performing? Absolutely not, actually. Um, and this is an interesting one because I had an interview on Joy 94.9 in Melbourne a long time ago and they asked me a similar question and communities never, ever attacked me and stuff. And... Then this young kid rang up and he goes, oh, they aren't really that good, you know, because I try to do what you do and I get bashed all the time, but I'm smaller than you. And it made me think, because of my size, I am quite big, um, that people probably would want to, but are a bit frightened because they can see the ferocity in me, I guess. I don't know. I've got a fire behind my eyes and she does even more so, yeah, because with heels on, she's seven foot tall and bulletproof. Nah. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, as well as being a performer, you're also, um, you know, a position, uh, musician, songwriter, visual artist, um, and now you're also thinking of getting into glass blowing. <laughs> Can you tell me more about what's on the horizon? Look, um, so what I did was I, I spent some time out with my gang um, 
Megan Batari down in Canberra. And uh, well, she lives in Wyndham, which is just out of Canberra, about 160 k's out, and beautiful drive through the Great Dividing Range there to get to her. Um, she has her own studio where she does glass casting, and she's part of the Canberra Glass crew. Like she, 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 um, Canberra Glass. What is it? She's got she's got a website anyway. I went down just curious because I'm starting to get into sculpture and making camp dogs and stuff, and I wanted to think about making camp dogs out of glass, which has to be casting. So I went and spent a couple of weeks with her, and um, so what I'm going to do is try and apply for some funding to you know get this new project underway, and I want to have an exhibition called um, NT uh, through the Looking Glass, and it's glass casted products and glass blown products which I'd have to go and you know spend time at Canberra Glassworks try and get that eight week residency there um, and you know like somebody else would have to blow it because you, you can't just blow from looking and watching in one day and um, but I have all these ideas that I want to do with this new exhibition and get it going around anyway touring at least so yeah that's on the horizon for me and I will make that happen um, there are a few other projects. One I can't talk about that's really exciting for me, but it, um, it'll be exciting for everyone, actually. But, yeah, it really is exciting for me. It's the biggest break Constantina needs, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and thank you yeah, so much, Kamahi, for joining us here on 3CR. No worries. Thanks for having me, hey? And you just listened to a conversation that I had with Kamahi Jordan King at Woodford Folk Festival 2019. And now we're going to listen to a track, Merchant Hud, by Jeremy Dutcher. This is Monica from Radio 4EB. Um, I'm here today with Carly from Radio 3CR in Melbourne and the infamous Jeremy Dutcher from Canada. Yeah, so my name's Carly. I'm a Wangi Chinese woman. I'm currently living down on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation and I'm one of the co-presenters for 3CR Thursday Breakfast. 
I'm very happy to be here today. In my language, I just said that my um, my name is um, Jeremy Dutcher, and I come from Negotkuk uh, First Nation, which is in the east coast of Canada, and I currently live uh, in uh, in what is known as uh, Montreal um, uh, today. And I'm very happy to be here. This is my first time in Australia, in Ginebara territory, and I'm very, very, like, uh, I don't know. Like, I came from the, the very, very cold winters of Canada <laughs> into this very, very sweaty place, so I'm having a good time. Jeremy, can you describe um, the territory that you're from? So the place that I come from um, is known by, by some people as uh, New Brunswick. Uh, in Canada, uh, but we know it as Wabanaki Kok, which means the the Eastern Dawn Land, and so um, this is such a beautiful territory. I really, if you get a chance to visit, I hope you do. Um, our we call ourselves Wulustuiq, and Wulustuiq means the people of the beautiful river. And so, you know, when I talk about our land, of course, I have to mention the Wulustuk River, which runs all the way down our territory, and it's our namesake. It's who we are. It's where we came from, and so uh, it's very, very uh, important waterway to us. And so, um, and it runs from the Gulf of Saint Lawrence um, in Quebec down to uh, the Atlantic. Ocean, and so this was a critical um, waterway for our people. You know, it was our food source, it was our highway, it was what we prayed to. And so, um, yeah, when I talk about our land, I always make sure to talk about that river. Um, yeah. And when did you first discover how musically talented you were? Um, I mean, I guess I never thought about it as as talent. Um, maybe in so much later um but i was always playing music music was always a part of our home environment and you know i'm the youngest of four brothers and they are all very musical as well um one of them's a jazz pianist the other plays guitar and uh the other my oldest brother is a traditional singer so he does like the old old school songs with like the drums and stuff uh which is really beautiful so uh music was always kind of a part of of, of growing up for us and uh but it wasn't i guess until i started to do like theater productions in high school that I was like, oh, like, I'm kind of getting these parts. Like, I didn't realize I had something here. So I went to my teachers and just said, hey, like, if I wanted to take this to the next level, what would I do? And, and, and she said, well, have you thought about opera? And honestly, no. <laughs> um, and it wasn't, it, the, the, this kind of music was not a part of my upbringing at all. So I sort of came to it much later. You know, they talk about a lot of these, like, virtuosic, you know, uh, people that start when they're like you know two years old and they've been playing their whole life and and that really wasn't my story and so I get a little um, maybe self-conscious around these kind of people because I'm just like I kind of figured it out on my own I just like um, my brother was a pianist too and um, I would we only had one piano in the house right so uh, and he took a lot of time on it so <laughs> I I would just sit at the like at the feet of the bench and watch him play and then the second he got up to take a break or like I would I would sit down and, and just kind of play around. And so I never really took a lesson in my life, um, just kind of taught myself and, and, and played. You know, I think that's there's a Canadian indigenous singer named Buffy St. Marie. And she always talks about the fact that like we need to keep remembering that music is play. 
you know, we call it playing music for a reason because it, it, there's a sense of play and joy that, that necessarily, I think, ought to come from it. And that for me is why I, I think I really struggled in those like classical music institutions because, um, just the, 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 rigidity. yeah, the rigidity and how uh, they thought that this is how music is supposed to be made and there's no there's no value in other ways of being and and for me growing up with our traditional music and and having a very uh, solid understanding of that i knew that there was another way and i'm so grateful for that because uh it allowed me to create from in that space you know i i, I took the good from those classical music traditions and and left the rest you know <laughs> i i really do believe that and you know there's a lot worth leaving um, but there's so much worth keeping. And so uh, I, I tried with my music to kind of marry these two worlds and, and, and really kind of turn them in on each other because these genres really aren't talking to each other very often, you know, classical music and indigenous music. And when they are, it's often, you know, uh, there's a real big power imbalance. And often uh, classical composers just kind of like pick and choose like how they want to represent us. And there's no real dialogue between us. So that's why I think I'm trying to offer something new and say that, like, actually, you know, we can, you know, create from our own space of knowledge and our own uh, and infuse our own traditions into it and also invent and, and create new things because that is how we have always done it. You know, I think really, even though I'm doing, you know, cultural music, there's uh, or traditional music, as some might say, um, tradition has never been static. You know, it's never frozen in a moment. Tradition always moves like a river. And so for me, I try to honor that with, with what I, I bring as well, because I want to, as much as I want to honor the past and tradition, for me, there's a contemporality that needs to come forward right now of like young indigenous people that are sitting here and, and looking out at a world that doesn't represent us. And that more increasingly, increasingly, um, we're sort of coming to um, uh, ecological disaster. And I think uh, within our languages and within our songs and uh, within our knowledge systems, there's a real antidote, you know. And so I hope that, you know, my project and my music can, can keep just reminding us that, like, there's other ways. There's other ways. And actually those ways might be what can save us. Because I really do believe that the logics that got us into the problem, i.e. capitalism and patriarchy and... and um, you know, monotheisms and all this kind of stuff. Uh, these will not be the institutions or ideas that solve the problem. Mm. We need to do a total 180 and rethink how we are um, living in this planet. And Jeremy, have you been uh, supported or denied of, you know, what you are trying to create? I, I think for me, it's like, of course, you know, there's a... a Every every person has an opinion, and you know I, I I'm not out to like create to appease people. <laughs> I just I want to create from the intersection that I find myself. And I will say, you know, uh, from my elders, I've been very very supportive because, like I was saying, you know, they understand that culture is fluid, and that uh, we're in a moment right now where if we don't um, have a contemporary gaze onto this issue then we're just in the same cycles that we have been in for the last you know here 250 maybe in Canada 500 years so I think um, 
the the old people are really excited about it and, and something that's really surprised me too is the really young people get into it as well because I think there's been this at least for us because I'm singing in Wulustugwe our language um, there's a real fire right now uh, with with the young people and trying to to learn our language because I think we're like and as indigenous people too like when we go around and meet other indigenous people in Canada and they're introducing themselves in their language and they're fluent speakers and it's like oh why don't we know you know, and it's, um, you know, you have to think about how colonization happened in Canada. They hit the East Coast first, right, and then moved west. And so on the East Coast, we've been dealing with the longest period of, in a polite way, I would say cultural friction. In another way, I would say, you know, cultural practices of genocide um, that have sought to suppress our language and our culture and our songs, right? You know, I I, I think it's a miracle that I get to sit in this space and, and share what I share, you know? Just one generation ago, like in, uh, up, up until 1951 in Canada, uh, it was illegal for us to share our music in public. And so, like, you know, this is, this is pretty recent history. Like, uh, the red last residential school closed in 1996 in Canada. You know, so this, I have many people that I know in my life that have been, uh, part of these like uh, practices that that sought to erase us, and so I think even the fact that we are here and we are sharing and we are still doing it is something to celebrate. And uh, I think the young people really get that, you know. And I think they're really excited now to hear like a song in our language on the radio. Like that didn't happen when I was growing up. So now that I can be a part of of, of showing our young people how beautiful our language is, how beautiful those songs are. Um, it's been really, really cool. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be haters here and there, but I, I, I don't give, uh, I don't give mine to this. <laughs> and do you receive either provincial support or, and or federal government support for your creativity? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, we're very fortunate in Canada, I think, because there's a, there's a really broad funding structure both like municipalities provinces and uh federally uh as well as like uh, artistic funding bodies like the Canada Council for the Arts and all these um all these institutions um yeah uh, i will say like on the on the like music industry side of things it's a little harder because i think i'm not necessarily a marketable you know, musician for them, uh, because I'm not singing in English or French, um, because I'm saying some politically complicated things for them, um, they tend to not smile on that. So I've kind of, I've, I've, I've released this record that I did uh, independently, uh, and I've, I've really not wanted to go the label route. Uh, and that's, that's a couple, there's a couple reasons for that. You know, with with this project that I'm doing, because I'm using those old wax cylinders uh, that had been in the museum for like a hundred years, um, for me that's a it's a very sacred thing, right? And I wanna I wanna treat that very delicately. And uh, with the music industry, like when you sign with a label, you sign your masters of your music over to that label for ten years, and they can do whatever they want with it. And for me, that kind of betrayed the ethos of the whole project, right? Because for me, it was about deinstitutionalizing our cultural material. And to sign it over to some other non-Indigenous institution would have just been like, what? And so for me to maintain Indigenous control of that material uh, was very important, you know. And, and you know, I, I, I like to talk about uh, this idea of, of rematriation of these materials back into our community. 
Um, and that looks like a couple things, you know, for me just to like put those songs onto the record so you can hear them was one, but like the physical manifestations, like they, they have those wax cylinders and they still sit in the vault, you know, and they, our people don't have access to them unless you go through these very complicated processes. So, um, for me, we really want to see those returned. We want to see that stuff come back to our people. Um, and it's starting to happen. Uh, and I was very exciting about that, you know. Um, because that changes things when, when in our community, when our people can go and they can see, you know, these beautifully crafted canoes or this artwork from like, you know, the 1800s or like 1900, like it's, it's an inspiration to us and it allows us to carry that forward as well. So, yeah, I think I have received support. There's been other roadblocks, you know, people that, um, don't wish to see this uh, these kind of messages out into the world, and um, you know that's been going on for a long time. You know, I just brought up Buffy Saint Marie, and she, in her career, she was blacklisted um, by the U.S. government, and so they refused to play her music on the radio. She was not getting booked in venues, and and so there's, you know, I, I, I I'm confident that things are changing and we're moving, and people are ready to listen, uh, but also there's an old guard to I think everywhere that that insists on um, keeping those same messages going um, and uh, yeah I think as a young indigenous person I uh, I have the great privilege of, of a different worldview and I, 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 I unapologetically want to share this because I believe as I was saying you know it is the antidote to a lot of what we're dealing with right now like if we were if we were in in indigenous worldview me too is not even like that wouldn't have even have been an issue you know because we respect our women um you know this uh you know uh i honestly there's like i could list them list them list them you know there's like there's so many of these things that we're going through right now that if if we take a different approach i think there's uh we're getting a different result so i hope. Um, and I want to take it back to talking about the recordings from the Wax Cylinders and talking about your latest album. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you've also mentioned you know, the ecological crisis. And I see a lot of activists you know, really ramping up um, the tactics that they're using against the you know, settler state. Um, and also then taking that through to like, the capitalist model that artists have to sometimes you know, resign to and how much pop music these days um, is really forcing artists to just be producing and recording music constantly. But this process um, of yeah, creating this album has been a much slower process. Can you just talk us through that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you, you really nailed it on the head there with that question. I think the music industry uh, is really in hyperspeed right now um, because of streaming services, because of the, just the industry has changed, right? And it makes it so that... Um, having like what's your next hot single like what's what's the drop like when <laughs> when when are you coming next and I think I've uh, for uh, since I started I've resisted that I think for me telling a story a story of deep value takes a lot of time and as journalists y'all know this right like it's like if you want to tell the story in a proper way you got to take the time to like do the digging talk to the right people um sit with yourself see how it sits new and and all this stuff and so i think um you know from from research with the cylinders to the recording and the composition and the finishing of it it was a five-year process and that's just like 
that doesn't happen in the music industry now. And so uh, I, I, I'm trying to resist that as much as possible um, going forward. But also, you know, it's, it's hard because once the, once the ball starts rolling down the hill, it's, it's quite hard to stop it. So uh, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm taking uh, like a two months off in the new year. I'm like not touring anymore. I'm just going to sit in my, in my studio and, 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 and write and try to come up with... Because, you know, I think there's so many stories that that have yet to be told from our community um like i was saying they don't know us they know uh, an aberration of us they know a projection of us um through hollywood movies and i think that is such a shame because there's so much that we have to offer and our stories have such a morality and 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 a message um so i want to i want to take the time to tell these stories in the real proper way and, and that will take time and much to the like dismay of my management and like <laughs> the people around me. But um, I, I really have to double down on, on just saying that that good stories take time and uh, and I don't want to waver in that. I'm really interested to hear um, your experiences about working with or just hearing what anthropologists have had to say <laughs> about your community. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, this archive was collected by this guy named William Meschling, and he was an anthropologist who lived among my people for about seven years. And, you know, I got to listen to the things that he recorded, the photos that he took, but also I got to read his journal. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I got to really dig into, like, his, his thought process around how he was viewing our people. And, and in a way, it, it almost, like, I took more from what he didn't say than what he was saying. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, I, I just, in the ways that I understood our people from the inside, I knew that he was missing the mark. You know? <laughs> I knew that he was seeing through his own lens who we were, rather than, and I think, you know, uh, I think the anthropological project is shifting now, where I think anthropologists are locating themselves more and more and more to say that like, well, I, I should just say, like, in that tradition, like, in old school anthropology, it was like the the anthropologists had no identity. They were just a fly on the wall kind of deal, right? Uh, but this kind of betrays the cultural biases and the kinds of, and their social location and where they're creating and, and where they're seeing from. Uh, and, and, and what I'm encouraged by is those young anthropologists who are, working with communities and going into communities and saying, what do you actually want? What do you need? How can I use my privilege, my education, my uh, mouthpiece to amplify what this community needs right now? And I think, and the more I see that, the more I'm encouraged because I think, yeah, uh, we're just going to get more in-depth stories. We're going to get more um, real, more authentic representations of who indigenous people are because we're not one thing you know like you're saying we are many and and we need to we need to understand that for ourselves and be able to represent that to the outside too oh you had such an incredible talk yesterday with Rhoda um and one of the things that you did say was that language orients us in the world so what has it meant for you going back and listening to these recordings yeah so uh, i mean <clears throat> Language has been a very interesting um, part of this project for me because, um, you know, I, I, uh, through this project, I've come to understand and, and uh, you know, increase my fluency to, like, 
10 degrees you know it's been it's been huge to be able to like sit with these stories and these recordings and and uh and our language too uh it, it because it wasn't written down until about 20 years ago it changes so quick you know the reason that we think english is so sturdy and the same is because it's you know it it has been written down and very uh highly policed you know uh before shakespeare was on the scene there were many different englishes you know and you know and so i think uh we're in a moment right now where we need our like native shakespeare to come in and like to come in and really ground it right now because even like in in just in wolderstock nation we have four different writing systems <laughs> you know and uh, I, i'm very like this this project has allowed me you know being an artist and being a self-employed person i have the time and space to go and sit down and learn every single writing system that is out there um and not every like some people don't even know one so it's like being that that person who has the time and space to like sit down and 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 try to create resources for for people that i didn't have you know there's four books in our language that's it and one of them is the bible so i'll say maybe three books <laughs> um you know and so i think for me i just want to create the resources that i didn't have um and that's really what this album was about that's you know i'm writing a book right now and I, that's what i want that to be about um i'm working on videos and 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 showing representations of of indigenous people of queer indigenous people of of all of the diversity of who we are um yeah i'm I, i'm really stoked that i have the opportunity to do that but language is such a central piece to that that puzzle i think because the more we come to understand those concepts in our language um the more yeah we are we are rooted in in the ground you know for example like we're sitting here in this in this beautiful festival and there's we're surrounded by trees and our word for trees is abisiac and we call ourselves wulustuiak so that ending that that suffix of that word means the people so these trees you know they are my relatives they've seen a lot more than i've seen that's for sure and they stand firm and they are rooted and located and you know half my life if i could be like a tree i'd be so happy you know because there's such a a perspective they see the season change and they know so much and they've witnessed so much and so i think the more that i unlock and dig down deeper into that language the more i understand the interrelatedness of all things you know not just the centrality of humanity uh which i think is 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 almost laughable uh the more that i that i understand that you know we the earth doesn't actually need us in fact i think it would do a lot better if we weren't around uh we're the ones that need the earth and um and and being in relationship with that um has only for myself come through my language how do we how do we communicate to leaders um say politicians to influence them to make changes um to incorporate indigenous knowledge I I mean this is the central I think question for me and my work is like I want to invoke change I want to speak truth to power and um you know I spent a lot of time in my early 20s 
um, you know, doing the protest thing and showing up to rallies and doing the rah-rah and the finger-wagging and all this. Um, and I just found it never actually moved anyone. It's art. It's just art. You need to, you need to touch them and you need to, you need to show them your vision of possibility. And so uh, that's why I found music to be a really, really uh, powerful vessel is because there's something sub or sort of, uh, sorry, super linguistic about it. So it's above language. It's above understanding. It cuts to the core of your soul. And when you can crack people open like that and also make them laugh and make them cry and make them feel something that they never felt before, um, that's the only way you're going to move anyone. You don't, you don't move anyone by pushing a sign in their face and shaking your finger at them. At least this is my experience, you know. And that's this, this is not to say that there's a, not an amazing lineage of activists and people that, you know, that holding that space is very important. You know, we need to have that righteous anger as part of uh, a broad approach to change. However, personally, I have just found that you move people in love and in music. And for me, you know, I sometimes when I'm in Canada, we get like, you know, politicians, like, uh, the Prime Minister hasn't come out yet, but, but like, lots of, like, cabinet members and people are in the audience. And so I feel holding that space, there's a huge responsibility uh, to speak truth to these people. You know, in Canada, we have uh, um, nearly 100 indigenous communities with n no potable drinking water in 2019. And so it's like, this is simply unacceptable. Canada is one of the most resource-rich countries in the world, and we still have people living in fourth-world conditions. So en enough, you know? I ca I c of course, I could just stand up there and yell the whole time, and I wouldn't be justified. Um, but that hurts my heart, I think, more than it hurts them, you know? And so I just try to move in love and, and, and try to um, let my song be that change. And like I said, show them the possibility that I see, because I see such potential. When we start getting out, getting getting in the way of each other, we can start telling honest stories to each other. That was a really valuable message um, for all of us, um, especially the artists. I think that there is an artist in everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to dig that out. <laughs> and. Um, was there any point where you were fearful of uh, sharing um, what you have created? Um, no, I was never. I there was not one moment when I felt fear to share this. I feel wonderment in the fact that you know I, I think about my mother a lot in this in this work that I do. And, and think about her experience and the fact that, you know, she went to these schools and, and you know, they were, they were beaten for speaking their language. And so I get to come around the world and sing in that language to, you know, hundreds or thousands of people um, and have them, you know, stand up and applaud. What? What kind of wonderful fever dream am I living right now that, that just in one generation, it's kind of a 180 um, so for me, just the, the wonderment of that keeps that fear at bay. Because if, if, if I were to live in that fear way of being, I would never, I would never have done this, you know? Um, and, and I lay, I lay that 
wonderment and that love for this at the feet of my my elders and my people um, because they're the ones that have lifted me up. And, you know, it was it was an elder in, in my community named Maggie Paul that sent me to the archive and started this whole process. And, and it was always done in love. There was never a sense of, like, you need to do this or... Or if you don't do this, we're going to lose it all. Or like, you know, there's like, there was never that fear that entered into it from their perspective. It was always just about love and showing everybody how beautiful we were. Um, thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing your time this afternoon. Um, it's just been yeah, so incredible to hear your thoughts um, about where the Indigenous resistance is going to next. And yeah, something beautiful that you said yesterday is that people are now at the stage where they're curious enough to listen. Um, and I think that is just such a great place to be in. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. CCR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.